Good afternoon and welcome to the City View podcast. I'm Andy Sylvester, the editor here at City AM on what is a momentous day for the capital, the opening finally of the Elizabeth Line, albeit in three parts. A uh, few years late, but still very, very impressive. And in a few minutes, I'll be talking to Adam Tyndall from London First, and a man who knows more about London's transport network than probably anybody should. Uh, he and I will discuss Crossrail and what's next for the capital. First, though, some corporate and politics news and hitting electricity generators with a wind Full tax would be a quote challenging proposition unquote and could hamper the UK's net zero ambitions, according to Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng. The Business Secretary also came out firmly against a windfall tax on oil and gas companies, saying the policy is not a good idea. In comments that will put him in clear opposition to Chancellor Rishi Sunak, uh, Sunak is said to want to impose a levy on excess profits. We'll let you decide what excess profits mean. Uh, made by British oil and gas firms after they experienced record returns over the past 12 months. That money would be, in theory at least, uh, go towards families struggling with soaring energy bills. The head of Ofgem today warning in Parliament that the energy price cap likely to go up to as high as £2,800 in October. The FT reported yesterday that Sunak has told Treasury officials to draw up proposals for the levy to hit electricity firms, including renewable energy generators like wind farms. Quite how that aligns with plans to move towards net zero uh, is not quite clear to me. Um, Also in the energy world, Shell's annual general meeting is finally underway again now at 4pm after it was delayed for nearly three hours following protests from climate activists. Protesters stormed the meeting at Methodist Hall where shareholders were set to vote on the oil and gas giant's climate transition plans. Dozens of protesters from groups such as Extinction Rebellion derailed the proceedings this morning, chanting slogans like Shell must fall and holding banners as Shell Chair Sir Andrew McKenzie tried in vain to continue the meeting. Uh, McKenzie eventually said that he was welcoming everybody's views, but there were things that just required a little bit of peace and quiet. Meanwhile, the Bank of England has said lenders and insurers that do not respond effectively to climate risks could face major hits to their profits. Official said predictions varied across different financial institutions, but a 10 to 15% drag on profits on average could be the case in the worst case scenario. Uh, losses of this magnitude can make individual firms and the financial system overall more vulnerable to other future shocks, the bank said in its biennial stress tests. Elsewhere, good news from Shaftesbury as they see the West End picking up, uh, following good news from Grosvenor as well yesterday. And news two from Tops Tiles of all things, the DIY boom continuing as people continue to sort out their bathrooms. Um, There's plenty more all on cityam.com right now and we'll be in tomorrow's newspaper as well. But for now, we are going to talk Crossrail and London's transport network um, because there's plenty to talk about. So Adam Tyndall from London First joins me now. Adam, pleasure to have you here. Great to be here. Um, we're going to talk about Day Dot on Crossrail um, and, and where this project has come from and, and perhaps where London goes next. I need to get used to calling it the Elizabeth Line. But you've had the pleasure of riding this this revolutionary new transport today. What do you think? I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. You know? it, I was uh, eavesdropping on conversations all around me and from, uh, you know, Two women on an escalator in uh, in Woolwich Station who were comparing how long they'd been waiting for it, living in the area and waiting for it to open, uh, through to the kids uh, running up and down the carriage, taking mm. photos, people commenting on on how quiet it is, uh, how how smooth the ride is. Um, it was it was just fantastic. And actually, probably the most striking thing was when at, at Paddington. Uh, I, I transferred to the Bakerloo line and stepped out onto the onto the platform and thought, "Wow, this is small." Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was lucky enough to do. It. I just when it started running the, the test runs, um, 
I went on it, but obviously there's nobody nobody on it at that point, so you don't get a sense of it. But even then, the scale of it and the the architecture around the the stations and just how big it is. I just I remember turning to someone and saying, "It feels like I've arrived in a functioning European city." It just sort of felt like the sort of thing you arrive <laughs> on at Stockholm Airport or something. It just felt all very well organised and not necessarily a thing that you expect in the UK. Um, let's go back to. Um, to how we've got here, because it's been a project that has taken an awfully long time to come to fruition, important though it is, going back to the days of Ken Livingston. But there was one particular element that was really interesting about the way Crossrail was funded, and I think is important in the context of the rest of the country looking at London getting another shiny new transport project, which is that the vast majority of this was funded by Londoners for Londoners effectively, right? And particularly London businesses stepping up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a project that I mean, depending on how you how you count it, um, there were there were bills in Parliament in the late nineteenth century for a new East West railway linking the city and Paddington. Um, there were post war plans. Things really got moving uh, in the mid seventies, and then um, and then accelerated in the in the late nineties with a Central London Rail study. Mm. And at, at that point, there was another you know, the private. Um, bill introduced into the House of Commons, and it all sort of ground into the sand um, for, for precisely this reason. You know, the, the, it was unclear where the money was going to come from, and that was, uh, you know, small small plug, I suppose. Uh, but you know, that was the point at which London First was 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 created mm. um, in response to uh, you know the nineties being a period where London didn't have any uh, city leadership, and the business community realised that you know. Uh, businesses needed to organise um, in order to um, get the get the the outcomes that, that London needed if it was going to be a uh, you know sort of as you put it a functioning twenty uh, first century European uh, capital city and you know that was that was the point at which um, people started looking again at, at funding packages um, and essentially uh, what what happened over a, a number of years was was the business community offering to put put their hands in their own pockets and, and volunteering to be taxed more about 40 percent of the mm. uh of the final funding deal has been paid for by london's businesses and if you take into account the fact that you know london has uh, as a whole has a a net uh contribution to the treasury every year equivalent to more than two full crossrail lines mm. um you know london has paid for the whole thing yeah uh and you know and but i think you're you're absolutely right the additional money that came from additional taxes uh, on on uh, on the business community. You know, that's not money that would have gone anywhere else. That's money that only existed um, because the business community, London government, central government came together and and thrashed it out and, and worked out a deal that worked for everyone. Which is a fascinating model because, of course, one of the great problems that London has politically, at least, and in terms of governing itself, is that it it has precious few powers to hike taxes, drop taxes, um, and, and indeed certainly keep any of the revenue that's created here compared to other global cities. So it's interesting that we sort of had to go outside current arrangements to find the powers that we did have as a city and basically ask businesses to pay, yeah, what was it, 2% supplementary business rate for, for a number of years to, to, to get Crossrail over the line. I guess the businesses that were paying that, and again, as you say, the London business community did say, yeah, fair enough, we'll do that. They're looking at these infrastructure projects as essentially, I guess, a down payment on on their future success, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this 
this is a scheme that's ended up costing just shy of 19 billion pounds, but it's going to return about 42 billion pounds to uh, to the exchequer. And on a, on a practical level, you, know, you look at the the you know, on top of the, the the taxes, there were companies that literally put their hands in their pockets and and just mm. just offered to contribute. Mm. And you look at where that where those those companies um, are. You know, it's it's the it's these key business districts that are being connected up. So Heathrow, the West End, the city, Canary Wharf, um, and increasingly you know, the new harbour at Stratford as well. Mm. You, you think pulling that all together in a way that means you're going to be able to get a direct train from uh, our, our, our global hub airport in the West through to uh, our key business districts in, in the East in 45, 50 minutes. Um, yeah, that is a, that's a direct benefit to the, to the businesses that are located there. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And the scale of Crossrail as well. Obviously, we keep thinking about the central London element of it, but actually the building out um, and the speed with which people from, you know, the suburbs, the outskirts, Essex, Reading, whatever it might be, increasing their ability to get into the capital quickly, those people that are there at the moment, but also those people in London perhaps looking to buy or looking to upscale for a family home or whatever, now start to be able to see that actually the London housing market doesn't just stop at zone six, you know, it can move out far further. That's obviously going to, I would assume, I mean, in a small way, we quite clearly just need more bloody houses built. But, um, you know, in a small way, that'll help to start alleviate some of the pressure on the housing market as well, right? If you start making that London envelope, I suppose, the places that you can live within a reasonable commute of the office, you bring that down. Presumably, that just it just softens the demand across the capital more generally. Yeah, absolutely. But we don't even need to look outside the the M25 mm. for this. You know, I was down in Woolwich and Abbey Wood this morning. Yeah. And, you know, you step out in these places and there is there's a lot more space there for 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 housing than than there is in, you know, in in central London for, for obvious reasons. And you look at some of the future projects like extending the DLR out to out Thamesmead or the or the Bakerloo line extension into into southeast London. There mm. are bits of, you know, inner London let alone out of London, let alone you know, the, the home counties um, that are have real scope for for densification uh, for new housing developments. You, know, you look at the the station um, uh, down at down at Woolwich, which which wouldn't have happened without you know um, I mean one uh, some uh, fantastic campaigning from the, the local MP at the time, mm. and uh, two uh, you know housing developer who who came in and. Um, and offered, uh, you know, an offer to make that that happen with with a whole load new more uh, a whole load of uh, of new houses as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned those big projects and where we go from here because we're all entitled to bask in the glory of of the Elizabeth Line opened a few days before the Jubilee. Um, so it's ended up being wonderfully timed the opening of Crossrail, even though of course it's about three and a bit years late. But you talked about big projects, and we're entitled to think how wonderful it is today. But I guess there's a question now, a very pressing question about the future of London's transport infrastructure and the future of London's well ability to invest in its own future. Because well, we're at a pivotal moment really in the relationship between Whitehall and City Hall, and therefore TfL when it comes to funding. Since the pandemic, we are on bailout number four now of central government cash, which, as you pointed out earlier, is very often taken from London anyway. But 
London cash going into Whitehall, coming back to London to keep TfL going because of the massive crash in, in passenger revenues. There are fears, and Sadiq Khan's been very clear about these, as is Andy Byford, head of TfL, and that it's difficult to imagine without a longer-term funding settlement that TfL will be able to invest in the things it needs to invest in, both on a day-to-day basis in terms of the engineering works, making sure the bridges are staying up, as well as on the longer-term projects that you mentioned, like the Bakerloo Line extension, Crossrail to a new river crossing in, in East London beyond Tower Bridge, all that kind of stuff. I assume you, I mean, I think I know what I'm going to, the answer I'm going to get from London first, but I guess the key thing is to make sure that this isn't the crowning achievement in London's transport investment, but it's actually just a point of saying, well, actually, these things do deliver value for money. Um, there is a business case for these and we need to keep going. And actually, central government, City Hall just need to come to an arrangement so that London can start planning for its own future. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we are, people are asking questions about, um, the level of public transport demand uh, post-pandemic. I think, you know, actually the, the statistics are starting to answer those questions mm. pretty pretty clearly, you know, with, with numbers um, recovering. Uh, but, you know, this isn't a project for the next few months. This is project a project for the next century. We're still mm. using um, tunnels built in the 19th century across London. Um, and this is a city that's still predicted to grow by a couple of million people by the middle of the century. Mm. And if we want to, I mean, A, facilitate that growth, and B, do that in a way that allows us to uh, meet our net zero targets and C, uh, at the same time, keep the roads moving, we're going to need a lot more public transport mm. rather than less. And I think, you know, your your point earlier about the amount of, control London has over its own destiny is is really well made. London retains about 7% of the tax that's raised in London. Um, places like New York, it's about 50%. Mm. So you know, we are inevitably uh, more constrained, more reliant on um, on deals and negotiations with, with central government than, than a lot of the cities that we're competing with um, globally. And you know, that's not to, to ignore the fact that we do have more control um, than other cities in the UK. Mm. And this shouldn't be an either or situation. You know, there should be more devolution um, of, of, of funding across the board uh, so that cities can be in control of their own futures. We've got strong mayors, uh, you know, in, in major cities across the country um, who should have the power to, to make these decisions as the directly elected representatives of, of these places. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's not what we have at the moment. Um, we have a short-term crunch, as you rightly say. You know, we are exactly one month away from the end of the latest funding deal um, for, for TfL. And, you know, those are, those are operational. You know, people forget that the TfL was operating without central government funding mm. before the pandemic. You know, that, that's a mind-blowing achievement. You, know, you talk to uh, pretty much any uh, public transport operator in any major city around the world, and they are envious of the ability of TfL to, to fund itself. Yeah. And that was because the tube was making a surplus, uh, a significant surplus every year, and that was reinvested in supporting the bus network and, and, and other things. And you know, to, to be operationally um, self-funding is, is phenomenal. And, but that meant that TfL was 
seventy uh, percent of TFL's funding, more than seventy percent, um, came from passengers mm. compared to figures in the thirties for equivalent networks in other cities. So when people stopped using the network during the pandemic and did the right thing and stayed at home, uh, the, the, the funding streams dried up. And you know we should be absolutely clear that, that these 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 so-called you know, bailouts are. Uh, are a pandemic support. Yes. That is a direct result of people taking responsible courses of action. Um, but it does mean you know, when you take that and when you take the additional spend on, on Crossrail as a result of the delays, both the, the additional spend and the lost revenue from the last three years when we should have had passenger fares coming in from the Elizabeth line, um, it, London has mortgaged itself to the eyeballs. And that makes it very difficult to know uh, to be able to plan for for future investments. Mm-hmm. Now, the first step is to make sure that we get TfL back to being, you know, what it what it was, which is a you know fantastic, sustainable, um, you know, manager and and planner of of the of the London transport network, and being able to you know invest in basic maintenance and and upgrades. Yeah. You know, there are, it controls five percent of the road network, and there are something like forty five major structures on its bit of the road network mm-hmm. that are operating with interim safety measures because there's just not the funding to do the works properly. Yeah. And, you know, and we, we're buying trains for uh, the Piccadilly line at the moment, but not the signaling system that will yeah. enable them to operate at their, their planned frequency. I mean, like there are all, there are loads of these examples, but what it also means is that the planning for the bigger investments has been, has been put on hold mm. and, you know, it's all very well, the prime minister uh, standing in a crossrail station saying we need to be thinking about crossrail too, but the the funding packages that are coming from uh, his government are coming with strings attached that have mm. meant that that team has been put on ice in in TfL and you know and and I think London is up for it. London wants to have that conversation. London businesses want to have that conversation. Um, you know, sort of we're ready when when you are prime minister but uh, you know those words have got to be got to be backed up with with actions and we've got to find new ways of, of funding these big projects yeah you're right boris saying well, it really needs to be thinking about Crossrail too, which from my memory is is essentially, depending on how you start it, it's basically Epsom and or Wimbledon right up through to the northeast of London, um, sort of going the other way. Um, but you're right, at the moment, there's bailout packages, pretty small bailout packages, so-called bailout packages, pandemic emergency packages, I think is probably a better way of putting it as you did, um, that come with various cost-saving requirements on TfL that, you know, TFL, even, you know, even the, the transport committee admits TFL has pretty much cut itself to the bone in order to meet those targets already. So there's not really much fat left to cut. So definitely one um, to keep an eye on, but without fish- finishing on too much of a downbeat note, um, it is wonderful, I think, to have Crossrail open again. Adam, uh, thanks for joining us uh, to share in mostly the excitement of today, but also <laughs> warning of what might be to come. Hopefully, it's a, the excitement is the signal of what's to come. Uh, yeah. we, we, we can but hope. Thanks very much. Thanks, Adam. That was Adam Tendor from London First, and that's all from us at the City View podcast today. My one advice to you is go and get on the train. <laughs> <laughs>